0: Hey guys, it's Nathan. This is episode 43 of The Nathan Seawood Show. The
1: Nathan Seawood Show. Personal conversations with powerful men.
0: Hey guys, how you doing? Thanks for tuning in. I hope you're having a great week. Every week we're having deep, vulnerable, unedited conversations with men who have overcome adversity to thrive in their business and their lives. And just a few days left to Christmas, so thank you for taking the time to listen. I know it's a busy time. There's a lot going on, and it's stressful for a lot of you. So thanks for taking the time to listen. And uh, even though it's a busy time, I'm just in San Diego. Just left New York yesterday. Left a very snowy New York and came to a very sunny, warm San Diego. Which which is bizarre to be in the depths of winter in on one side of the country and then to come over here and it's completely warm and sunny and everybody's walking around in T-shirt and shorts, which is ridiculous. Heading back to New Zealand in a few days, so super excited about that. And, yeah, everything is good in my world. I just watched this incredible interview between Tony Robbins and Peter Diamandis. And if you don't know them, go and look up those names. But, uh, you know, both men that I admire... Tremendously for for different reasons. I didn't actually realise they were friends, and that uh, Tony's invested in a lot of Peter's companies. But it's left me so excited and so pumped and so positive about the future. There's just so many incredible things going on, and Peter's at the forefront of anything futuristic. So he specialises in longevity. How do we how do we lengthen the lifespan of people? And if you look at it, we've gone from an average age of 32 years old that being the average lifespan 300 years ago to around 75 to 80 in the current time. So we've doubled our life expectancy in 300 years and they expect that they're going to double life expectancy again. So to go from 75 to 150 years, probably in the next 20 to 30 years, which is incredible. And there's a lot of stuff with stem cell research and just biomedical devices and things that are just going at a rapid rate so it's so it's really exciting that that that's happening, and the other thing that Peter looks at is just where AI or robotics or that kind of technology is going to fit into the future and again, that's super exciting for me. The issue that we have is that if you you follow this stuff is that you know robotics and AI is going to take over the majority of manual labor jobs and it's happening now so this is not something that's 50 years away this is something that's already happening we're in this and in the next two to three years things like buses trucks maybe not airplanes but they're all going to be driverless and so we're going to have a lot of people without jobs now there's going to be a huge amount of jobs created and there's going to be a lot happening, but there's going to be a transition period. Now, if you're worried about the future, it's most likely because you're still holding on to the old model of the past, the employee model, working for somebody, getting a paycheck, hoping that your pension payments come through. It's just you're going to be very lost if you continue in that way of thinking. But right now, you have access to more information than President Clinton had during his presidency. And you have access to more technology. Just you and me, average people, we have more access to technology than President Clinton's Joint Chiefs of Staff. And that's incredible. So all of us, technology is available. Technology and information is available to everybody, the average man. And so if you are willing to embrace that and if you are willing to step out a little bit and step out of your comfort zone and start finding ways to... Use that technology and use that information so that you can create a life yourself in the future. You're going to thrive, but now's the time to get into it and start exploring it. And so I just want to plant that seed for you that the future is incredibly bright and it's so exciting and all the technology and things that are coming are are just going to be wild and they're going to solve a lot of humanity's biggest issues. And what I want for you guys and my tribe is to be at the forefront of that and make sure that you're capitalising on all this stuff and that you're going to be uh, really successful in the new world. So keep an eye on it. Keep doing your research and keep don't don't put your head in the sand. Keep following all of the advances that are happening and make sure you're looking at how can I thrive in the future? How can I become an entrepreneur? How can I use this information to my advantage? Uh, this week on the show, have a really good friend of mine, Toku McCree. Toku's been with me uh, on this coaching journey all year, and he's one of the most passionate, deep coaches that I've ever met. He's committed to being a master coach, so he loves. Mastery. And I I haven't met anyone that has the same level of commitment to coaching mastery than Toku. He has a wild story. You're going to hear all about it. The most standout thing for me is that Toku lived in a Zen monastery for a few years and really understands the Zen principles, but realized that that wasn't his destiny that his ability to make a difference was going to be bringing Zen principles and fusing them into the modern world and helping people that way. And he is so insightful, he is so deep, and he really just knocks it out of the park with this conversation. So I really think you're going to get a lot out of it. So enjoy this uh, very personal conversation with the powerful Toku McCree. So I was actually
1: was born on a uh, Air Force Base hospital in uh, Hahn, Germany. And lived in Germany until I was about one years old. And then we lived in Athens, Greece, till I was three. And then we moved to the south of the U.S. after I was three. And we lived kind of all around the south. So my grew up mostly as a military brat. Different bases, moving around a lot. I flew over the Atlantic seven times before I was three years old. Wow. Yeah. My dad was a fighter pilot, assistant base commander in the Air Force by the time he retired. And so my first memories are of Greece. My, my parents tell this story about me when I was growing up that they were trying to get me to sleep through the night and um, I woke up in my crib I guess I was two years old I I called for my mom and, and she didn't come and I called I was like daddy 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 he didn't come and I called for my sister piggy in piggy in piggy in she didn't come and then I started calling in Greek I started saying Ella 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 which means come here in Greek and they said uh you know once I started calling in Greek they went to me I think actually that's a um, pretty good descriptive of kind of one of the things that's pretty defining about me in my life is I'm very, very persistent. Like uh, kind of unbelievably persistent. Like I don't even believe how persistent I am. I will take multiple failures and rejections and setbacks and just kind of keep going. I think I had to do that. You know, I think growing up in the base was nice because it felt really safe. It felt like a really safe community I Feel like everyone. You had to just form quick bonds When I left the, my dad left the Air Force and we moved to Brentwood, Tennessee, which is this, um, upscale suburb of Nashville, I I didn't fit in anymore. And it was really, it was really hard. I got picked on. I was bullied a lot. I didn't really understand the kids there. I didn't really understand who I was in the context there. I I moved there. We were living, we've been living in Mississippi before that, which is like deep South. And I had like a, I had like a little rat tail haircut and like a denim jacket and, those rich little yuppie kids just like had a field day with me. And I didn't really understand it because I'd never really experienced that before. Like it wasn't a little bit like being outcast or rejected in some way, but I'd never really felt that before. And this part of me, uh, there's a part of me that came out from that time that something I still wrestle with today, which is just this tremendous anger. I remember there was this time this kid, I don't even know what he did. It was Andrew something. And, uh, he took a basketball for me or something. And I, this is how I remember it. Maybe that's, this is not how it happened, but the way I remember it is I grabbed him by his hair and like pulled him to the ground and like pulled him across the playground, like a few feet by his hair. Wow. Yeah. And I was not, I'm not a big kid. I mean, not a, I'm not a big burly guy. I, you know, I'm, you know, five, four, five, five, if I want to lie about it, on my driver's license. <laughs> um, I'm not a big guy and I wasn't a big kid. And, but I was really strong and yeah, I, I remember just being really angry at that time in my life. And that's been uh, that kind of dark anger in me. Like it's been there for a long time. And I, I can really trace it back to this, this transition of like coming in this place and just having who I was showing up really authentically in, very, in a very heartfelt way get really,
0: get really rejected. And what's it like the actual Air Force part of it? Is there uh, something defining about living on Air Force bases? Yeah, I've wondered sometimes
1: about like, was I aware that like, you know, my father was doing something dangerous or there's something about that. There's something with the Air Force. It's it's kind of like it's elitist in a way, like it's a very interesting branch of the service. So, you know, in the in the other branches of the service, the Army and the Marine Corps and the Navy, the fighting guys are the are the grunts. They're the the enlisted guys, not the officers, not commissioned, the NCOs are not NCOs, but just just regular enlisted guys for the most part, they're the infantry. And there's some officers and some NCOs, non-commissioned officers who lead the troops, but most of the fighting is done by the enlisted guys. Mm. In the Air Force, it's the opposite. So the fighters who are the pilots, they're the officers. So the fighting force is these people who have been really highly trained, usually came from good backgrounds and had a lot of education. And it's all kind of in support of them. So it's, it's this sort of interesting branch of the service that there's it has a sort of like elitist quality to it, or like uh, you know, be almost like being like your father was like in the cavalry versus like, you know, being a foot soldier. So I've always wondered if that had an effect on me, being where my father was going off in danger. I know he was gone a lot. I think that was really hard for me. I definitely remember times where I wanted him to come to school functions and he just wasn't able to he wasn't able to go and it's it was different of like, you know, fathers who were workaholic, which my father's also a workaholic, but, you know, sort of like he just like there was no choice. Like you work in the military, there's no choice. There's not a sense of he's choosing this. It was like, well, he's going to go do it and that's his duty. So um, I don't know if I answered your question, but.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I mean, yeah, having that Air Force influence or just that military influence and then you know, the moving on top of that and then eventually going to somewhere very different. It's an interesting way to start your life.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I, you know. I was talking to this guy that came and visited us at um at the 4PC thing but Joel Joel I think his name is Joel uh, the guy who's the mass media guy and he was talking about how I my brand was all about like crossing cultures and as we're talking now I realized like how true that is actually a theme in my life you know I was born in Germany lived in Greece then came to the to the south the deep south and that was a big transition actually when I was in We lived in Columbus, Mississippi. I I was part of an integration program, so they shipped the kids from the base. They bust the kids from the base over to a largely uh, African American school. I was the only white kid in my class for a whole year. I was in third grade. I was the only white kid in my class, and my they didn't want to put me in the class because it was the gifted class, and they didn't want to put me in there because I would have been the only white kid. My mom went down there and basically yelled at them and told them that was ridiculous and that I should be in the gifted program. And so I was the only white kid in this class, and I sang. um, I did the talent show and I did a I sang a Michael Jackson song while playing the spoons, because that's what you do. And I tied for first place. The height of cool. It was the height of cool. I think you peaked there. <laughs> I did. I was it's all the downhill from there. <laughs> I co-won the talent show with this uh this little black girl who sang uh swing low, sweet chariot. We tied for for first place. So yeah, so there's that, and then there's crossing over into this experience of being, you know, in the in this kind of suburban yuppie school, which was very different. And and then uh well, it's important not really yuppie, like at kind a of Nuva Riche school, and then going to college was a big cultural transition for me. I moved into a dorm room with three Like huge drug using potheads who had lived a lot of life by the time they were 18 years old. And I was this very straight laced, you know, high school wrestling guy who had spent all his time in church up until that point. And there was that experience. And then I, you know, moved into a monastery, which was a totally different cultural experience. And then from there into the world of coaching. And so there's actually a lot of like really big, significant cultural shifts that have happened in my life. And I I think it really started from a really early age. And um, that flexibility of being in the air force and being in all these different cultures i love that flexibility that i have like i have a lot of friends that have stayed kind of in each stage that i've gone through and kind of stayed with that culture or way of being but it's also been hard because it, there's a certain like loneliness to rapid change and flexibility and ambition that people don't talk about that and i think i learned how to be with that loneliness really really early for good or for
0: ill and so do you think now you could be dropped in pretty much any situation with people culture and you'd be fine how you look at yourself? I mean, I'd like to
1: think that I don't. I don't know if that's true or not. I, I mean, there might you know, if you put me into like a rough South American gang, I don't know how I'd do. But but maybe I. I don't know. I mean, I'm pretty adaptable. I used to call myself a social chameleon, and uh, I could adapt to any culture. But the thing is, I adapt and conform, and then I immediately challenge the norms of the group. That's kind of my. Uh, that's kind of my mo. Yeah, I do think that. I actually think that most of us can do that. I think that most of our what we define as. My experience, at least is most of what we define as personality, is actually largely dependent upon the people we spend time with. And the so there's this idea of like our personality somehow stable, and it, I actually don't think it is. That has not been my experience that we're actually very adaptable to the situation we're in, and we can really change who we are based upon the culture we're around. And so there is a part of us that's not changing, but it it isn't the personality exactly. So yeah, I think that there's a way I could be dropped into any situation and adapt.
0: You remind me it brings up a lot of stuff for me because when I was young, I went to just a you know ordinary middle class primary school elementary school with boys and girls, and that was all fine and then you know my dad's side of the family he had a family before me, so I had three half brothers and a half sister and my dad grew up pretty poor you know on the wrong side of the tracks kind of thing, and was a self made man and mm-hmm. but his family was not accustomed to wealth or education really in any way. Tertiary mm. education, at least. Then my mother's side, her family was all doctors <laughs> and her brother's wealthy entrepreneur and everything. And so I remember that same thing of being, oh, I've got, you know, brothers and sisters that are struggling a little bit financially. And then I'll go to my mum's side and it's extreme wealth and up to like business jets and that kind of level. And then mm. going back to school and then I got went to, to high school and that was kind of a uh, rich kids' private school. And so there was a whole other different level <laughs> I was discovering yeah. so I remember the same thing thinking man I'm such a chameleon you can drop me it doesn't matter rich, poor anything I, I can fit in I know both worlds mm. I remember realising that that's not true like when I'm hanging around people that don't have a lot of money they have a certain belief about rich people and when I'm hanging mm. around people that are wealthy they have a belief about poor people and I didn't have that I knew that we were all just people mm. I remember that being like actually acknowledging that when I was young as being a real gift Do you think that's why It's so easy for you to be so loving? Yeah, I definitely think, definitely, yeah. I just have always known that, and I think being gay as well, you know. so that adds another element, a whole other community that I can relate to. Mm. It just allows me to see everyone as, you know, that whole saying of everybody's fighting a battle that you know nothing about. Well, I I see everybody's battle. I've seen everybody's battle, or a lot of people, I should say, not everybody. So why did your parents choose to come back to the South? Was that where they were from pre-military?
1: Well, uh, no. So they got, he got transferred out of Germany oh, to a military that. base in Columbus. And then we, when they were looking, my dad retired. He retired from the military because they wanted, he had pissed somebody off. I, mean, I can curse on this, right? Can I just sure. like drop F-bombs all the time? That's what I thought, but I just wanted to check. <laughs> I, I, I become hyper checking. aware of, of curse words when I'm in the South. So, cause it was a big thing we weren't supposed to curse growing up. Yeah. You're a natural uh, right now, right? I'm in Nashville right. I'm in, I'm in Nashville right now. It's actually very appropriate. I'm mean, in kind of where I grew up.
0: Yeah, we're circling back.
1: Yeah. So, um, it was an expensive so my,
0: ticket I paid for you to fly out there what, just for this. I
1: know mm. it was. You, we really, you were really, you were really invested I'm, in the experience. Yeah, that
0: far I'm willing to go <laughs> for the, the people.
1: <laughs> so my dad done music throughout the whole Air Force. You know, he he actually really wanted to be a musician, but he didn't think he could make any money at it, and so he. He played in bands all throughout the Air Force, and he said, we wanted to work in the music business, do something in music. And so he looked at moving to a few different places, Orlando, uh, Los Angeles, and Nashville, and they just, they liked Nashville the best. The, they found a place that had a good school district, and they liked the South. My dad's from Orlando, so he's from the South. My mom's from Colorado, so it's not the South, but it's um, rural, kind of rural Colorado, not, not the big city, not Denver. It was um, Loveland, she grew up in Loveland. So they chose Nashville to move to. And that's why we moved here to a suburb called Brentwood, which has the best public schools in the state of Tennessee. So they wanted to make sure we got really good schools, which I appreciated. And so that's why they
0: moved here. Mm, That's cool. So you go through, tell me a little bit more about wrestling. How did you get into wrestling?
1: So I was always pretty active growing up. I got into soccer, like soccer was the, and that's what you, you're in the suburbs, you know, the kind of shishi suburbs pretty much anywhere soccer is like the sport i don't quite know why but it is sort of like the rich kid's sport and <laughs> at least in the u.s at least it was at least it was where i grew up so i did soccer a lot growing up i played soccer I didn't really do anything else um i played basketball a little bit i wasn't tall so that didn't help and i wasn't um I was okay at passing, but it, basketball really wasn't my thing, and so soccer was good. My height and my size didn't really matter that much. Um, I did play football one season, but I didn't. I didn't really love it either. So I played soccer, and then when I got to middle school, our soccer team was very competitive and i didn't make the team and i also just had this like i didn't really want to practice like i didn't really care that much about it and uh the kids i knew who did it a lot they would just practice all the time and it didn't um i I wasn't really interested in doing that and so i was i was really little and i was really strong and so we were in gym class one day and i was doing this thing called a pegboard you know what a pegboard is no yeah so it's like you have these two dowels that are pretty pretty thick and then there's a board with holes in it and the idea is you like put a peg in the board and then you use your arm strength to put another peg in. So it's almost like you're rock climbing with like two picks. <laughs> okay. And so there was a pegboard in there and I was doing the pegboard. And one of the kids, a guy named Jimmy Sullivan, that's a total other aside, he's, he picked on me a lot growing up and then he sent me a... A message a little while ago on Facebook kind of making amends with me. I'm sure he was doing 12 step work. And anyway, <laughs> just that all memory just kind of coalesced in my mind all at once. So I was doing the pegboard and he said, you know, you should come try out for the wrestling team. So as I weighed, um, I weighed 75 pounds. I have no idea what that is in kilos. I'm so sorry. Americans it's, are awful at that. It's like 30 kgs. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like 30 kilos. So I weighed, I weighed, I weighed 30 kilos in middle school. Mm. So. It's really hard. It's, they don't have a lot of people who are really good at that weight, or it's hard to find people who weigh that little and are strong. And so I joined the wrestling team and I really loved it. I um, got really, really involved in wrestling. The workouts, I think the hardness of it really appealed to me. Like the workouts are really, really hard, grueling a lot of endurance. It's like a high level of skill and strength and endurance you need to, to do it well. And I got really into wrestling. I did it a lot in middle school. I went to tournaments over the summer with our my coach, Bud. Kind of like the coach from uh, Beavis and Butthead, like this <laughs> kind of bald, kind of balding, gray-haired, buzzcut guy, and was kind of like grumpy. And uh, I don't know, maybe not Beavis and Butthead. Maybe I'm thinking Daria. Anyway, good, good I'm 90s my nineties, cartoon TV references. <laughs> anyway, so he listened. I remember he listened to NPR, uh, National Public Radio, in the car, and that's where my love for NPR came because we'd have to listen to NPR on these long trips, and because we'd drive to wrestling tournaments around the south. So I did that. I was really good in high school. I won the. HVAC championship twice. And then I I did it in high school and I was a three time region champ, placed fifth in the state my senior year. So I was really, really into wrestling and I trained really hard. I I remember I used to go run and I would just run for like hours, like just run and run and run. I did tons of running to like get in shape and to have incredible amounts of endurance. And I remember just like loving doing that endurance training. And I also didn't really fit in with the wrestling team. I also did drama, so I was like this weird. Like I did singing and drama and wrestling, which is not a very common.
0: That's not the rules. It's breaking. Those the, are rules. the rules.
1: That's a. I think I like. There's a character on Glee who's like on the football team and also in Glee. And um, <laughs> this is gonna be a whole interview. All about TV references. So, Perfect. Um, yeah. Have you Google? So handy. I was like that. Yeah, I was like I was on the debate team and I was in the gifted program and I did I did singing. I was in musicals and then I also was like on the wrestling team. It was just weird. Did
0: not fit in in high school, and where does so the, where um, does wrestling sit on the hierarchy of coolness in terms of sports at high school? Not
1: super high. It's not <laughs> a super. I mean, some schools, like maybe if I had gone to school in the Midwest, it wasn't awful. It wasn't like um, it's like better than chess team, sure, but it was definitely was like I think it would have gone like football, basketball maybe soccer i don't know soccer had its own kind of weird placement and then probably wrestling mm. was down there and then you know they're like golf or tennis or so it wasn't a super
0: those are my sports thanks very much
1: yeah so it wasn't it super big it wasn't, it wasn't like super cool but it also wasn't super like dorky either you know it was re- it was a respectable sport people mm. respected you if you're a wrestler because it was hard people didn't really understand wrestling it's hard to watch so it wasn't much of a spectator sport but it was still it was still all right I was well known in my high school. I don't I don't think I would have defined myself as popular in any way. I think people probably found me highly annoying. Looking back, I probably was really annoying. So, but I was definitely do you say that? well known. Oh, cuz I am I was very oppositional in high school. I got kicked out of classes like on a regular basis. I was super smart. And if a teacher tried to like feed me a line of bullshit, I just would not stand for it. I just did not know how to let things go. I did not have that ability to be like, oh, like we can just agree to disagree. I would push, you know, it's that persistence thing, right? I would push my point. And um, it was actually really hard because I felt like it was really not okay for me to, less than the kids, right? I feel like the kids were, you know, I mean, you know, I had social hierarchies in high school are, are tricky, but it was it was really like the teachers and the system it just felt like it was not okay to be who i was in that school system and show up that way like it just really wasn't okay for me to be this oppositional argumentative kid and i got into a lot of trouble and had a lot of problems i barely passed the 4th grade like i almost got held back in the 4th grade because i had problems with school and i just didn't i didn't really know how to function in that structured system like it was really really hard like i didn't know how to like sit in my seat and behave and pay attention and and i didn't want to do that i wanted to do what was interesting i wanted to challenge myself i wanted to be creative and
0: it was would that be called ADD today
1: but it wasn't ADD it wasn't i did i did get diagnosed with borderline ADHD and actually wanted to put me on medication but i wasn't ADD it wasn't a nervous system disorder i was just smart and i just was persistent and i was creative and i are archaic like ridiculously put everyone in a fucking shitty little box and you know let's teach them to be good little obedient factory worker citizen school system as good as it is which just didn't work for me you know our school system is in the u.s is designed to teach people who are kind of like middle of the road or very like conformist achievers and i wasn't like that i was not like Everyone else. I was doing my own thing. I had a really strong, deep internal world and emotional experience, and I was not willing to compromise who I was because someone told me that I needed to obey a rule. Um, I wanted to be good. So I wasn't like, I wasn't getting into trouble because I wanted attention. Like, I really wanted to obey the rules, but if the rules were stupid, like, why the hell was I going to obey it? That doesn't make any sense. Like, I'm not just going to shut up and be quiet because you're in charge. That's a stupid reason to like listen to someone.
0: So did you keep that? All the way through school, or did you eventually conform? I oh, mean, I
1: still, I still have that now. What, <laughs> what are you talking about? You see, we're in groups together. You know, yeah. you see what I've done with Rich. I mean,
0: but that's true. That's yeah, true.
1: I'm still like that. I mean, I that's got to
0: be one of your greatest gifts, though, right? Oh, totally. But it was. um... There's such a social pressure to conform, just to be liked.
1: It was so hard, man. It was so hard because it was. I felt. I felt so torn between this. My whole life, I've been just like, there's a part of me that's like, this is who I am. And I I can't not listen to it. Man, I have tried a lot of times. I can't not listen to it. But when you know, you've know you got this voice inside of you saying, this is who you got to be. This is the truth. This is the way you show up. And the whole world is being like, no, it's like being gaslight, gaslit by the entire
0: world. It's like you have two options you can either be yourself and not conform and not fit in or you can fit in and have be fighting against yourself
1: yeah in some ways like i did more i did more damage to myself than anyone else could have done just because it was just i you know like living on a rack you know it wasn't all bad i mean there was stuff i was grateful for but i beat my own heart into submission for the first 18 years of my life in a lot of ways and then spent the second all <laughs> the second fifteen years getting it getting it out of submission, so um yeah, it was brutal i i would um I mean I think we do that I think we that's what we do to children a lot, but it was um I have so much compassion for myself during that time.
0: how does it make you think about your own kids if you were to, well, i don't
1: I don't have kids, but
0: yeah, if you were to have kids i mean how how does it make you think about education and raising them in schools and all that do you ever think i about don't want
1: i don't want the, I don't want them to go to school why I want to unschool my kids. Yeah, I don't want my kids to go to school. My parents say, you know, you had some really great teachers too and that's true. I mean, I had some... The difference, and this was the difference. When I had really great teachers, I loved it. and I was like the most incredible student. I was kind of a mediocre math student my whole life. Mostly because math teachers are awful. Um, (laughs) It's not their fault. It's I mean, because like you go into math, you go into teaching math because you love math and then you end up like... It'd be like, you know, loving literature and like teaching the alphabet. Like it's just got to be torture, right? And so, I don't... The whole system of, I mean, what they should really do is find people who love to teach and like teach them how to teach math rather than take people who love math and teach them how to teach. Yeah, good like point. that's, um, so, uh, so I hated math, but then I had this, um, I had this teacher in high school called Mr. Stalmazak, which is a great name for a high school teacher. Right. That is perfect. Short and, sleeves,
0: uh, tie.
1: Yeah. You got, you got it. Yeah. Mm. Short sleeves, tie. He wore I Converse. I,
0: I hit him straight away.
1: Totally. Right. He had Pinky, Pink Floyd posters on his wall. <laughs> And he taught uh, trigonometry, and I won most outstanding trigonometry student, which is just like, I was just a surprise. I didn't know they had enough. awards for that. They, uh, at my high school, they had awards for most outstanding trigonometry student, and I won. And it's just because he was a great teacher, right? I mean, if, if someone led me well and powerfully, like, I would follow them. But I would not put up, you know, I expected impeccable leadership. I expected... I expected to be led by someone who was confident and knew what they were talking about and was willing to take my challenge without freaking the fuck out. Mm. And if someone did that, I just would like respect them endlessly and praise them and just do everything I could to like anything they suggested I do, I would listen.
0: So where does it go after high school?
1: So I went to college, I went to George Washington University, go buff and blue, (laughs) different colors. Buff is like yellow. I don't know why it was buff instead of yellow, but this yellow and blue isn't that inspiring. So I went to George Washington University, which is in, um, excuse me, the George Washington University. I had a big mm-hmm. thing about the the. Uh, it's in downtown Washington, D.C. And I went from, you know, again, I sang in my, my church choir a lot, did a lot of youth group stuff. And I moved in with these three just really kind of total ne'er-do-wells. I think <laughs> only one of them graduated besides me. And so I, I got to maintain my strength and morality for about Six months, maybe. And then I I tried pot for the first time. And then I turned into this um, total stoner hippie. Just like couldn't be more like I had dreadlocks at a certain point and I listened to fish and I had a, you know, three or four different bongs and, uh, you know, had patchwork pants and a beard and was shaggy and smoked a pack of cigarettes a day. I mean, unrecognizable to who I am now and really unrecognizable to who I was in high school. And I really started experimenting with drugs a lot. So I smoked pot. I did um, MDMA, acid, mushrooms, really do that many hard drugs. I mean, I did probably cocaine a few times. I tripped on Dramamine once, but it was mostly like psychedelics and pot and mostly pot. I never really liked drinking. So I drank a little bit, but not... I didn't really got into drinking. That was never my thing, but I smoked like I smoked an enormous amount of pot. I used to smoke like a quarter, quarter pound of pot a week at least. I was basically from about the ages of like 18, 19 to 28. I was I would say, kind of, if you met me, there was a 95% chance I was stoned.
0: Wow. Yeah. And what did you get out of the drugs, Wade particularly?
1: That's a good question.
0: Thank you. <laughs> it's almost
1: like you asked me for a podcast. Nathan Seward, podcast
0: host. Look me up. <laughs> <laughs> Um,
1: part of it is it, it kind of turned the volume down on all my feelings. Like I, I remember like in high school, I would get really, really angry or I'd have be really, really emotional, like, like really emotionally in love or really scared. Like my emotions were really, um, so I was in the gifted program. And one thing they don't often talk about for people who are gifted. So, but if you're gifted, it's highly intelligent, but it's also like multi-talented. You're often have like, not only do you have a greater intellectual capacity, you actually have a greater emotional capacity you feel things really deeply. And I'm also an Enneagram type four.
0: Oh, that's interesting.
1: Yeah. So four is just like, I have a really deep emotional experience, kind of fascinated and obsessed with the in my internal world. So I think that like I would, I remember that like I could be, I would be really, really angry, pissed off about something and I would could smoke pot and then I would like be angry, but it was like, instead of being like a 10 of anger or a nine of anger, it was felt like a five. And so I could kind of like have my emotional experience without it being too much. It kind of like regulated me in a way. It felt really nice, and then also I think like I just got into the culture of it. Like, as you know, it's there's a certain kind of in group belonging when you're a pothead, and you it it sort of lends its potheads like being a pothead kind of lends itself to like a lot of the things I like doing. So you get stoned and have deep conversations and talk about the meaning of life, and rather than like you know get get drunk and yell about football, which wasn't so much my style. So I think that's that's what it was.
0: Yeah, it seems like it, it brings, you know, what you're talking about going from fear force to school, to school, to school, you know, you learn to adapt, but there is that loneliness that comes with it. And yeah. Yeah, you can smoke pot, you can be in this whole group of people talking about all the things you love, regulates your mood and your anger. And it seems like it's the answer to all those problems.
1: It's interesting. So then the other side of it is it also like made me feel things like more deeply, like it enhanced like the depth of experience of, um, Listening to music, you know, music sounds really incredible and food tastes really good and <laughs> sex feels really amazing when you're stoned. And so there's like a there was also like a deepening of like physical experience. I mean it also got me in my body. I definitely like lived in my head a lot in high school and pot kinda puts you in your body for good or for ill. And so it yeah, it served that purpose for a long time.
0: So does it go down in the history as good good idea, bad idea, somewhere in the middle?
1: I mean, I'm not into like doing revisionist history. I mean, I how can I possibly criticize what brought me to the place I am now, which is something I'm incredibly grateful for. And of course, it kind of all makes sense in reverse. You know, I think there's been a a long time in my life where I felt a lot of shame around the fact that I smoked so much pot, and I was not the best. I did not have the most integrity in that time of my life. I did a lot of like kind of shitty, fucked up things. In that time of my life, you know, I like I was basically like a womanizer. There were days I would like, you know, sleep with one girl in the morning and another girl in the afternoon. And you know, I stole stuff from my friends. There was a period of time in there where I started a business with my my dad, and I um, embezzled money from the company. I embezzled money from the company so I could pay for a college course, so I could graduate from college, which I hadn't done. But I still embezzled money from the company. Never (laughs) told, I didn't tell him about it. I have told him about it since then. So, so we're good. Yeah, so we're good. So I'm (laughs) not going to get arrested. You know, so there was. A lot of things about my life where I was just not honest and not I did not act with a lot of integrity. Um, I think I was doing the best that I could with a lot of a lot of pain and suffering and this deep question of who am I and you know I did the best I could, and I learned a lot from smoking a lot of pot. I mean when I work with clients now or talk to people who are in this place of like I don't know who I am and feeling really lost, I get it. I've been there, I'm been in the depths of that. You know, I think I, for a long time, I really looked at it as like it was a waste of time. And there are certainly times now where I feel like I'm trying to like make up for lost time because I spent, you know, basically my 20s stoned. But in when I'm not sort of in a contracted space, I just see like, yeah, like that was part of my journey and I needed to go through it. And I learned a lot of things about myself and I got really familiar and intimate with the very shadowy parts of my personality. That's been really helpful for me. And so, you know it, it happened, and those were the choices I made at the time, and I think those are the best choices I could have made. And now I'm grateful for all those versions of myself because they led me to where I am now. And I don't, I don't know if I would have gotten to this place and had that fullness of experience if I'd never gone through that period of my life.
0: Yeah, I love that. I love that perspective. So, do you choose not to do any drugs now, or is it something you do occasionally, or when it comes up?
1: Yeah, I mean, I you know, I would say. I didn't do it when I lived at the monastery. And then when I got to the monastery, I, would, I did it every now and again. For a long time, I was kind of afraid to do it, and then I would do it every now and again. My friends in Nashville, a lot of them still smoke, and so I'll do it sometimes with them. As I've kind of moved on and on, it's kind of like I'm not as interested in it, like kind of doesn't appeal to me. And there's a part of me that's still like, in some ways, like an ideal evening by myself would be like getting stoned and like masturbating to porn. Like that sounds like my like, you know, sensual delight and then like eating a pizza. So there's a probably kind of decadent.
0: Let, let me just get the visual image. Hang on. <laughs> 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 just want to make sure I got this one clear.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's get stoned. Yeah. Uh, get stoned. Uh-huh. Uh
0: Masturbate. Yeah.
1: Masturbate. That's, that's M-A-S. Then, um,
0: yeah.
1: Yeah. I got that. Uh-huh. And uh, to porn. To porn ideally. Not necessarily, okay. but ideally to porn. Mm-hmm. And then um, eat a pizza. Mm-hmm. And then probably ice cream. Okay. Right, and it's just like kind of a very hedonistic, yeah, just total hedonism, like how hedonistic, so that's like a, but I haven't done that in a long time, so I'm not close to ever doing that again, I that that part of me exists but the thing is, is that I used to every time i I have smoked now, it's like oh, like I want it to feel as good as it felt then, and it doesn't, like part of it is that uh marijuana is so strong un- unless you have a tolerance to it, it's kind of too strong when you do it unless you do a very, very small amount, and it's really hard to dose. And so it's not like alcohol, like I can dose like, okay, like I know if I have two drinks over this period of time, but like marijuana, it's like, you know, how much are you getting in a single hit of marijuana? Like, who knows? Mm. And so it's really hard to dose and I don't like eating it because it's, yeah, it makes me really sleepy. And, you know, there's a part of me that's still like, ooh, like that would be fun to do again. And I'll probably, there's probably a point where I'll smoke, smoke marijuana again. Like I don't have like a, a relationship to it. Like uh, some people do with alcohol where like, nope, you know, I can't ever drink again. I don't have that fear that i'm gonna start smoking again there's been times in my life where i've like when they legalized it in oregon i you know there was period i wasn't smoking every day but i was kind of smoking a couple times a week and i would do that for like a week or two and then go what the fuck am i doing and i would stop it's not really as fun as i want it to be so i'm not saying i would never do it again but i'm kind of over it in a way like it doesn't really it's interesting what happens is like i almost feel like i need to do it every like six months or a year and then i do it i'm like oh right like this isn't actually fun like i kind of want it to be fun and it's kind of not it's actually just like i feel kind of shitty the next day and i get too stoned and it isn't really enjoyable not mm-hmm. like it used to be i used to just like love it love getting stoned it was like so much fun and now i'm kind of like oh it's almost like i remember um i used to love watching Beavis and butthead i tried to go watch it like as an adult I'm like oh my god this show is awful stupid it's not funny. I mean, it's funny if you're 14, but as an adult, Beavis and Butthead is just not funny.
0: No.
1: <laughs> not good. It's yeah, not a well-made Why was I laughing show. at
0: this? <laughs>
1: <laughs> like, why did I think this was funny? But, you know, I was 14 and thought, you know, poop and fart jokes, which sometimes I think those jokes are funny now, but not in that context. Anyway,
0: so. There's um, nothing funnier than poop and fart. Let's get that clear. Let's just get that very clear.
1: So, no, there's a part of me that wouldn't mind doing MDMA again. Like, that was really fun. It's been.
0: Well, you can microdose that too, right? You could.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's been. um. I don't even remember. I don't think I've done MDMA or uh, any hallucinogens since going to the monastery. And I've thought like, ooh, maybe this would be fun to do sometimes, and I just never. Part of it is I just like don't even know people who do drugs anymore, so I'd be like, if I was like, oh, I really want to do this, like, I wouldn't even know where to find it. Like, I don't even know who to go to. I mean, pot, basically, I only smoked in Oregon because it became legally available to buy, so it was easy to get. Mm. Or when I was in Nashville, my friends had it. But I, it's sort of like, if you were like, all right, go find, well, I could do it in Nashville, but like in New York, you like, go find pot. I probably could figure out someone to call and be like, well, do you know where to get it? But I really would, I don't even know. And then hard drugs, like, pff, no idea. I could probably find it that was in LA because, you know, it's LA, but, but anyplace else, like, I wouldn't even know where to start. So I, I, you might still have like urges at points, but it, you know, never exists long enough for me to make any particular effort
0: towards it. You mentioned the monastery a couple of times so people are seeing me going oh my God ask him about the monastery what is he what, what, is, what is the monastery what's he talking about so tell us the story that led you to live in a monastery
1: So many different places I can start this story from I'm going to start with the Canadian it was all a Canadian's fault. I was living in Nashville and decided I wanted there was some inkling in me I needed to like change my place I was or where I was coming from and I was sort of like kind of felt stuck with my friends and my job and just didn't feel like I was going anywhere and I just needed to like break out of my that mold. I think certain part of me knew that my life, kind of as a stoner, like wasn't really sustainable anymore, and I wasn't really interested in doing it. And so I knew I needed to make some change, needed to do some adventure. I had a sense of like I needed to change things. And so, um,
0: what were you doing at the time? I
1: was selling merchandise for a country artist on the road. So I was on tour with a country artist named Phil Vassar, and I was selling T-shirts. I was making really good money. I was making hand over fist. I'd worked out this deal with them, just like where I got a percentage of the
0: t-shirt sales. I was just making bank.
1: So I was making really
0: good money then. Let's go back to that because that's a good context actually. So how do you get into doing something like that?
1: Yeah, this is the problem with like
0: asking me stories about
1: my life is like every little thing has like a million stories to it. Because you know, I've I've run a sumo chicken boxing ring. That's one of the jobs I've had. I've had had over 30 jobs where I was 30 years old. So I have 30 different stories about every job. Okay, so I'll give you the really quick version. So I left college. I left college with I had six credit hours needed to graduate. So they let me walk, but I decided I was just not going to get a degree. One, because I was just bored of college. And two, because I thought it was very like, ooh, like I don't need your piece of paper. That was kind of some, you know, very bullshit, righteous, stuck up philosophy <laughs> thing, which is not true. I should have just graduated. I did eventually graduate, but I like, you know, seven years later. Uh, so I left college. I moved back to Nashville. My intention was just like live in Nashville for 18 months or a couple of years and then save up money and go backpacking around Europe. That was my plan. Um, I ended up staying for like four or five years, I think. And uh, so I moved back, uh, didn't really know what I was doing. I had a bunch of like random jobs. And then my dad got me an interview with this guy who runs, uh, he ran a sub distribution company for Red Distributions. This is back before like when digital downloads were still just like a new thing. I worked for him for a year. I got really disenchanted with that job. I was basically like a glorified office manager and like personal assistant that's basically what I did. So I left that job and then I um, started a company with my dad which didn't go anywhere because I was terrified and stoned and had no idea what I was doing. Then I left that job and I there was a guy named Doug Merrick who was a manager who I'd worked with on my first job before they him and uh, David who was my other boss that stopped working together. And I just like knew I wanted to work with this guy. I don't know why, I just like I want to work for this guy. And so I called him every 2 weeks for like three months or something or i don't know i just was calling him a lot and i just just every couple weeks i'd be like hey how's it going it was every week actually i called him like hey how's it going do you have any work for me he'd be like nope we would catch up and be like great and so i was very polite but i just kept asking again very persistent and uh, eventually said you know um this band the gin blossoms are looking for a guitar tech can you be a guitar tech and I was like, sure. I had no idea. What, I had no idea what a guitar tech did. Just like totally like, oh, okay. So then I was like, I called somebody else. and I was like, what, what do guitar techs do? And, you know, they basically tune guitars, change the strings, take care of guitars for a live touring band. And uh, so that was great. I'd played I'd play guitar growing up. So I knew how to play guitar. I knew how to tune guitar. I'm actually not great at tuning guitars, but I know how to do it. But I'd never play the electric guitar. It's mostly electric guitar. So I actually... Borrowed my friend's electric guitar and bass, and sat in my room for like two weeks and basically strung and unstrung and restrung and learned how to clean and take care of electric guitar just by doing them over and over again, so like tons of practice. And then I went and got on the road and worked for them for over a year. And uh, guitar teching was part of. I was guitar tech and stage manager. I was in charge of loading the band in and out and setting up the stage. And I was also part of your job when you're on tours just to be fun to hang out with. So I hung out with the lead singer a lot so cool. So I did that for a year and a half. That was fun and interesting and also incredibly boring. Um, that's what people don't tell you about being with a touring rock band is that there's just hours of incredible boredom where you're not doing anything. You're mm. sitting in like a parking lot in Kansas City watching... Sports Center, which is super boring. But that was really kind of a fun adventure, and I traveled around. I've been to every state except for Alaska in the U.S. and That was part of being on tour. So I did that for a year, a year or so, year and a half, and then I got fired for getting to a fight with the drummer of the band. And uh, so then I was then I worked at Hustler Hollywood, which was an adult bookstore. So I sold dildos, which was a really interesting job too. And um, uh, and then I got a job very briefly working for a t-shirt company who worked for phil vassar and then they said they wanted to leave the t-shirt company would i come be their full-time merch guy so then i left and my friend who had got me the job was like you like i got you this job and then you like stole our client i was like i didn't (laughs) mean to anyway so then i had that job with working with phil vassar that job wasn't as fun though because like when you're a guitar tech you're kind of like closer to the spotlight you're on stage and so your job is kind of cool when you're the t-shirt guy like you're not that cool. Like they want to sleep with the guitar player. No one's going to like go home and be like, I slept with the t-shirt guy from Phil Vassar. Like that's not <laughs> something guitar
0: tech is kind of cool, right? More money, but less street cred.
1: Yeah, more money, but less street cred. Though actually not the job that was, I got, it was sort of, I got the most groupies. The best groupie job I've ever had was I was a barista at an all night coffee shop. I got tons of phone numbers at that job. I have no idea why that was the job, but I had like girls hitting on me constantly at that job. So it was weird. Anyway, Guys, so take I, note. Take note. Work at a really cool coffee shop. night
0: coffee shopping. shop. Yeah, that's the way to do it.
1: So uh, so that's how I got into being the merch guy
0: for Phil Bass. Awesome. so that so that the monastery comes out of this. You want some more adventure, some more excitement, some something different. So, yeah.
1: So I decided to move to Portland. So I figure my, my resume was there. And when I worked for the Gin Blossoms, when I'd been in Portland, I'd met a pot dealer and a hot hippie within like the first ten minutes of being there. I was like, this is like stoner paradise. Which if you're a pothead, Portland is like stoner paradise, as long as you don't mind rain. So just FYI, if you are a pothead, I highly recommend you move to Portland. (laughs) So Portland's also great if you don't smoke pot. It's just nice if you're a pothead. So I I went on this epic trip across the country. I went hiking in uh, Yellowstone, Canyonlands, Bryce Canyon, natural bridges, arches, needles, just like all these different parks. I drove across the country and went camping in all these national parks and hiked over 180 miles not all at once in these little separate hikes
0: and uh so people like the, not from america give us a bit more of a context to that because america just had so many of these huge national parks right yeah and they're just incredible yeah.
1: Yeah, they're incredible. So a lot of them were in Utah, some in, in the southwest United States. So think like desert, big, beautiful rock formations. Arches is all these beautiful rock formations that like all make arches. And bridges is rock formation that make these land bridges you can walk across. Yellowstone is just this huge national park with the Teton Mountains and uh, a lot of geologic features. So like they have like hot springs and crazy amounts of wildlife, bear and buffalo and um, well, technically bison, um, bear and bison and moose and deer and just all sorts of really beautiful wildlife. And then parts of the, I uh, to to Zion, which is sort of this mix of like a, I did like river hiking. So you hike down this river that's in the middle of a canyon and Grand Canyon, which is this just huge national canyon park in the Southwest United States. So I did a ton of hiking. So it's these big, beautiful national parks you're off by yourself in the wilderness, hiking, hiking your stuff in, camping and hiking out. And uh, so it was a, it was a pretty incredible experience. Mm, amazing. So um I did that and then I was I on the way out there I stopped by Colorado to visit my ex-girlfriend from college and she was going to India and her boyfriend had decided she wasn't he wasn't going to go to India with her and so I said I'd go with her so I in the middle of this trip of doing all this hiking I drove to LA parked my car in LA and then flew to India for a month Because that's what you do That's awesome. Yeah. So then I'm I was in India for a month and India's amazing and challenging and um, what i say about india is that in the rest of the world uh life and death is hidden from us and in india the veil of life and death and chaos and order is completely removed like, there's no veil and it's just raw kind of like unfiltered life and there's a lot of like espresso grounds in your experience of that so i uh, went to india for a month spent time in goa went to alora and ajanta which are these two 2 2,000 year old buddhist hindu cave temples um and in the midst of that i got into uh you know it's like you go to india with your ex-girlfriend and either you guys are going to fall madly in love or remember <laughs> all the reasons why you broke up. And uh, mine was the latter experience. <laughs> so we just were getting in tons of fights. And uh, I met a Canadian guy there who was, in, um, he was into Tai Chi. And so he taught me Tai Chi. And we had these just really incredible conversations about my life and what I was struggling with. And I had this realization and this epiphany that was um, everything I'd been seeking to try to satisfy my life was very external and that I had never really looked at my internal experience and what was going on there. And so he taught me Tai Chi, and then he said, you should try out meditation. And that kind of laid the seeds for being in the monastery. That was sort of like, a, oh, there's this Eastern way of thinking, this sort of different way of approaching life. And um, so when I went to Portland, I, I feel like I needed to like go around the circle of life and death one more time through working. So I you know went to Portland and uh, got a job and tried to pursue all these external things and was deeply unhappy. And uh, I was, it was sort of the best job I'd ever had on paper and was the hardest job. I had two bosses. One of my bosses was probably narcissistic or had a borderline personality disorder, was kind of this really effed up woman and um, was really, it was just a brutally hard job. And I was working 70 hour a week. I loved the work because I loved managing people and working with the team and I loved working with musicians. That was really great. Working at a music venue was great. So then I caught my boss stealing from the bands. She was changing the ticket count numbers. So it was a, It was actually one of my favorite artists, a guy named um, M. Doty. He was playing a show and we'd sold really well. And she came in and changed the ticket count numbers on the show. And so then I saw her doing this, but I didn't know what to do. I was really scared. And so I I signed the settlement and settled up with him. And it was not... We underpaid him. I don't know. It wasn't by a ton. It was like maybe thousand fifteen hundred dollars $1,500. We underpaid him. And uh, I felt awful. And I was like, I can't... I didn't know what to do. It all happened really fast, and so I just kind of got along with it. And and so but then I said, "I can't, I can't do this." So I went and confronted her and said, "Like, you know, what we did was wrong, and we stole. And I, if you do it again, I'll quit." And try to get the other, went to the other owner, try to get her fired. They co-owned it, so he couldn't really fire her. And ended up, ended up getting fired about a month later. And you know, they said it was because of all this other stuff, but I knew, I knew why I was getting fired. <laughs> yeah, yeah, makes sense. I knew what the score was. But I think in some ways that was real, it was really hard for me at the time, but it was a real blessing because it. Um, I've been living in this kind of moral fuzziness for probably a decade at that point. And um, kind, of out, kind of out of integrity in a lot of ways and out of integrity with who I was. And I, I saw this sort of, you know, the version of myself 10 years in the future, kind of like Ghost of Christmas future, right? 10 years in the future, like what living in that moral fuzziness led to. And I was like, did not like the picture of it. And so I... I kinda of said, All right, I'm done with the music business. I'm ready for something different. And then I was at a party and I met a guy. I was twenty eight. He was twenty three and he was just like really calm. And I was like, Man, like who is this guy? Like what is this deal? Like when I was twenty three, I was all over the place. I was still all over the place and I was twenty eight. And so I just started talking to him and asked him, His name was Lowell. And uh so funny, it was like this conversation at a party that completely changed my life. Be careful, you never know what conversation you might have at a party that could change someone's life. Yeah. Um, we talk about a lot as coaches, like you know, a life changing conversation. But I, this was literally a life changing conversation for me. Mm. And he told me about the monastery and about meditation. And he said, um, then the conversation. He oh, he'd been living at the monastery. And at the end of the conversation, he said, you know, you if you're interested, you should come to the Zen Center and try out meditation if you're really interested. And so I went to the Zen Center and did a beginning meditation class and started meditating regularly and went to a weekend retreat. In October, I went to a, my first week-long retreat called a Sashin in November. And then I, at the end of that year, I, I didn't really have a job. I was kind of in between things. And I was like, I don't want to go to the monastery because I know I'm going to have to face myself. But that's exactly what I need. And so um, I went to the monastery and I originally thought I was only going to be there for maybe three months. Ended up uh, staying for two and a half years. Wow. What was the experience like? What was the first week like? Okay. That's, that's a great question. So people ask me that. They go, what was it like being at the monastery? I'm like, I don't know. What was two <laughs> years of your life like? I mean, <laughs> tell me what like ages of 18 to 20, what was that like for you?
0: Come on. I think most people, uh, they think about a monastery and they think, well, maybe like a predictable life as a routine. You get up, you do something. You well, know, right. So it's, they, they they put monastery in as just one repetitive thing.
1: Right. I'm sure people do this with you. Like, well, what was it like to be a pilot? Yeah. there's so much there's so much that you can contain nuance it. yeah a lot mm. of nuance so um uh the first week was the first week was a, actually was a session so the first week was was an intense an intense experience it was the second session i had done so a session is um so it's a meditation retreat it's week long um they do them pretty regularly at monasteries uh, there's two monasteries in the u.s that do them every month so the monastery i was at Uh, Great Vows Zen Monastery, which actually I do not recommend people go to. And I can tell you about that in a minute. But um, And the other one is Zen Mountain Monastery. They're they're considered the two most rigorous monasteries in the United States, probably. There's a couple Rinzai ones in upstate Washington that are also pretty rigorous. But in the Soto Zen lineage, they're probably the most rigorous. So a Sashin is a week-long silent meditation retreat. You sit for anywhere from 8 to 12 hours a day. Uh, no eye contact all the all the meals are eaten in, in uh, a very structured eating style called oreoki that involves chanting and then you maybe have the only person you talk to is you'll talk to the zen master for maybe five minutes if you talk at all you have an interview or sons usually every day but maybe every other day with the zen master so it's a lot of sitting um you wake up really early at 350 in the morning you do that anyway at the monastery but and then you sit for hours, basically. You're basically sitting almost the whole day. There's a little work pe- practice period, but it's mostly sitting remote. You basically sit almost the whole day
0: in meditation. Wow. I, I struggle to get through about 20 minutes.
1: Yeah, I get that. I, I do too now, actually. I mean, I can sit for long periods of time, but um, it's hard. It wasn't that session, actually, but the very first session was really powerful. We were given the instructions to not move. So usually when you're meditating and you're in pain, you kind of like move to adjust. You're kind of allowed to adjust. Mm. And we were actually given the instructions to not move to not move at all to p- stay completely still, and that whenever we felt pain to just be with it mm. and uh that was a really powerful experience for me what way well um when you sit completely with pain, this thing can happen where you actually like let go and the pain disappears or transforms into something else entirely, and you start to realize that all the things that we think are really painful or we think are i mean you know. We talk about limiting beliefs as coaches, like, oh like oh like I could never make a million dollars. Like like the limiting belief of my my leg hurts. That actually my leg hurts is a limiting belief. That pain itself is really a very subjective experience. And that in reality, intense amounts of pain can actually disappear in an instant.
0: Yeah, I guess because you you have a whole structure set up that when you feel pain you do something about it. That's the oh, yeah. structure that most of us have set up. Whereas if that doesn't work anymore, if you start feeling pain and not acknowledging it, eventually it's going to turn to something else. I just saw. Do, do you know Jesse Itzler? I don't. He's it, a really cool speaker, but he he was he wrote a book called Living with a Seal, and he got a Navy Seal to come and live with him and his family for a month. And he was saying something about that. The first thing the Navy Seal said to him is "Give me as many pull ups as you can." Mm-hmm. And he did like 10. And he said, right, go again. And he did six. And then go again. He did two. And then got to the point where he could barely do one. So he did like 20 total. And then the SEAL said, okay, go and give me another round. He's like, well, didn't you see? I couldn't even barely do that last one. And he said, well, we're not leaving here till you've done 100. He was like, I can't do 100. I, you know, I've done 20 and I, my arms are burning. He said, well, it's going to be a long night. And then they did it. It took them like six hours or whatever. And he just did one at a time. And got to the hundred and he was saying like, man, this is crazy. I was ready to give up at 20. I thought my limit was 20 and I did a hundred mm-hmm. after that. So like, what? Where, where am I at my limit in life where I'm only at like 20% and it's, it's actually exciting and it's also scary at the same time. Yeah. And so the, the monastery is, I remember you talking about it. There is a lot of getting up at 4am and doing chores and stuff like that. Right.
1: Very rigorous. Yeah. It's, you know, we give it, put-
0: 3.50 in the morning, meditate for
1: two hours, chanting service, orioke breakfast, uh, work practice, another chanting service, casual dinner, two hours of meditation, and then you go to bed. And so that's the, pretty much the schedule of, of the monastery day in, day out. For Those are the light weeks. Mm. The light weeks are about four hours of meditation a day, and the heavy weeks are 8 to 12.
0: What time do you go to sleep at night?
1: Varies, uh, 10 o'clock, sometimes 11. I mean, the problem is if you want to like read or do anything, you have to do it at night because you're pretty much busy the rest of the day. Your day, The rest of the day is really full. You maybe get, you know, an hour the rest of the day to do something else. So if you need to like do laundry or read a book or you want to like do anything else, you do it after meditation in the evening. So it's the, it puts you in a really intense container. I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, you learn a lot about who you are I mean, the thing we say is, well, anybody can be compassionate with eight hours of sleep. That's easy. Can you be compassionate and wise? Can you access that deep, bright mind with three hours of sleep or no sleep? Wow, that's, that's a great question. And that's in some ways, that's the question that I have lived my life from. The question that I run my business from is, you know, what am I, what am I taking refuge in? I try not to take refuge in anything other than the one bright mind, other than the most deeply awakened experience of life I can, I can have. It's I'm failing constantly at doing that. What do you mean by take refuge in? I mean, on a really simple level, like if I'm sitting, if I'm sitting in the airport waiting for a plane to load and I am on Facebook, I'm taking refuge in Facebook. Right? Mm. So that's what I'm relying on. Or the thing that actually comes up for my clients most often are, is they take refuge in their abilities, their talent. Or their brilliance, right? That's you know, sort of like we see this all the time. I see people with people in four PC. I see people in my coaching groups I run. It's like people take refuge in the thing they're really good at, and there's nothing wrong with taking refuge. I mean, nothing bad with being talented, but I mean, talent is impermanent. You know, you can trip on a rug and bang your head and lose your ability to walk. You lose your ability to remember things, to do a task, to fly a plane, to coach, and so it's impermanent, and so. If that's really what you're resting on, then, and you think I'm going to end suffering by being really smart, or I'm going to end suffering by, by making a lot of money, or I'm going to end suffering by really be really a great lover. Like if I just do this, if I just get this, then everything will be great. Then you are taking refuge in something that is not absolute. You're building on shifting sands. It may be glacially shifting. It may be shifting on a very, very slow timeline, but I mean, nothing Survives the crush of impermanence. Even legacy. I mean, in coaches, we talk about all the time about purpose and legacy, and we're going to build a school in Africa and you know and do all this stuff. And that stuff is great. I'm not saying don't do that. And there's a certain reality of in a thousand years, no one's going to remember that you built a school in Africa. You know, no one's going to remember that. And, and probably in in a billion years, if even if our planet even exists anymore, it's unlikely the human species as a whole will exist. So. If you are taking refuge or resting your life or living your life from a place of I'm going to achieve this to make some indelible mark on the universe, you're just you're naturally playing a smaller game than you could be playing. Because the game you could be playing, the place you could be living from, is from a place that is so deep and lasting and wide and vast that it makes the scale of the universe seem like a grain of sand.
0: Mm, that one land. So how how does that work for you personally? What does that look like? Oh, I mean, it's mostly me not doing that at all and looking at Facebook. Um,
1: I mean, when I've touched that place and I live from that place, my heart just, it just sings. It's just, it's like there's this tone at the foundation of the universe and I just resonate with it. And so, and it could just be for an instant. When I'm coaching, there's just moments where it's just like, there's no me, there's no toku, there's no coaching, there's no other person. There's just. The resonance of the bright mind resonating through my being and resonating through the being of the person in front of me. So I, I practice and align and build my life to try to be in alignment with that resonance. And I am just, just in the state of constant failure to do it. Like I just don't. Most of the time, I'm just not doing it. But I'm, I'm a persistent motherfucker. And so I just keep trying to come back to it. For me, this question of how do I my personal purpose is so I don't believe in purpose as an answer. I believe in purpose as a question. Um, in Korean Zen, you're given a koan, so one deep and awakening question for your whole life. And um, my personal question is: How can I be of deep and fundamental service to others, to help others walk the path that leads to awakening and embody the energy of wisdom and compassion? And so everything in my life. As best as I can with all of my flaws and all of my limitations, of which I have more than I could count. I am just like, how do I answer that question right now? How do I do it? How do I answer it bigger? How do I answer it for more people? And knowing that like no answer I could ever give would ever satisfy the question. But fuck yeah, I want to play that game. I want to play a game where there's just this, just this lean into that depth, to that awakening, to that bright mind in everything I'm doing and even if it's a you know line that gets infinitesimally close and I never touch it, I would much rather lean into that than to something else. So it's it's a practice. I mean it is everything I do is the practice of my awakening, of my innate enlightenment. And it's the practice to fully experience that enlightenment and bring that enlightenment into the world and everything I do.
0: Wow. Yeah, I don't know where to go with it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's so beautiful. I want to ask a question that's not going to do that what you just said justice, <laughs> but you know okay. how can somebody find their own question? how can how can so somebody go about creating their purpose as a question? because I get that that question is you oh,
1: that's a good question. I think I think the first thing is you, you have to
0: you have to lose hope.
1: I, I don't know how to I don't know it's always like never an exciting thing You're like, oh, you guys should lose hope. <laughs> Um, I do a lot of coaching around this. Yeah, I actually do around a lot. I actually coach people a lot around giving up hope, especially around there's this idea that you, I think a lot of coaches hold this idea of you can heal past wounds. And I don't actually think you can. I think your karma is your karma for your lifetime. So I actually think a lot of the stuff that's like the thing that you have dealt with, like you're never over it. Like you're just dealing with it with a higher level of refinement. Like that's your karma and it's never going to change. Not that you can't devolve it but like even the boots so of the buddha right like the foundation of a major religion like he had back pain he just had back pain like that was it he just had <laughs> a crappy back and he sat hours of meditation he was an aesthetic he'd done all this crazy stuff and his body paid the price and he had back pain so like if the buddha right had back pain then like is it really you know like can you really escape all of your karma i don't think so so i do a lot of coaching around this so i think you have to give up hope and what i mean by give up hope is You have to lose the idea that there is something that your small self can do to end suffering for yourself or anyone else. Like you can make your life really comfortable. You can get really, really, really good at making your life comfortable, but it doesn't matter how comfortable it gets, you're never going to end suffering. You're never going to stop impermanent. Um, There's this chant we do, I'm just going to get more depressing here. There's this chant we do at the monastery that said, your life and your fortune is like a drop of dew, like a bubble in a river flash of lightning i am of the nature of change there's nothing i can do my nature of the body to get ill there's nothing i can do to prevent being ill the nature of my body is to die there's nothing i can do to prevent death everything i am and everything i love is of the nature of impermanence there's nothing i can do to prevent from being separated from them like that is the truth of our lives like lemon spot yeah i know right you ready to go like let's do let's do 100 pull-ups let's Um, do it let's do it but there's this like you can't change that you cannot change impermanence like it's it is this foundational truth of our life that there is impermanence and there is something that becomes possible when you give up hope of this small self solving that problem that is so much deeper and so much more powerful than all of the little games we're playing it is super hard to sell it is really hard to put in a 10-step process Um, the buddha did a pretty good job he's got four noble truths he's got the whole way of being but it is Living from that place is deeply hard, but I think if you want your question, you have to give up hope that your life is going to answer some question in some final way and learn what it is like to live into a question. You could take your purpose and just flip it into a question. That's an easy way to do it. But I think that if you are holding on to hope that you're going to answer something with your life or you're going to get to some place where you're like, all right, I did it. You know, I built enough schools. I coached enough people I made enough money like that's it I'm done now you're just setting yourself up for for disaster but if you are willing to be brave enough to stare into the abyss of impermanence and feel your own heart and love through the heartbreak and believe beyond the hopelessness and live from this place that is bigger than any context you could ever possibly set a context so big that you're the illusion of yourself disappears, then you get access to or can come from a place
0: that is just, it's almost unspeakably powerful. If somebody wants to hire you to help them give <laughs> up <develop> hope. <laughs> how would they go about that?
1: <laughs> how would they go about hiring me?
0: Yeah, <laughs> I know. I I did this whole like
1: when I first started my coaching business, I did this whole like I want to create enlightened leaders. And my friend Leo was like, do, "Do leaders want to be enlightened?" And I'm like, "No, what they really want is to make more money." So that's what I sell. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, if you if what you think you want right now is you want more success in your career. You want deeper relationships and you want kind of one of a more satisfying life. If you have a sense of, if you are the kind of leader that questions, if you're the kind of person that questions beyond success, and maybe the questioning came from your success, maybe it's always been there. But if you're the kind of person that is really always asking deeper and deeper questions and are unsatisfied with the answers, you can I have a website, you can go to unexecutive.com, you can reach out with me on Facebook, you can email me. My email address is toku at unexecutive.com. And let's have a conversation. Those are the kinds of people I love working with, the people who are just to keep asking these bigger and bigger questions, questions that are bigger bigger than even like, you know, how do we solve the energy crisis, but like these really foundational questions about existence. So that's, I work with leaders like that. And then if you're the kind of coach that wants to develop incredible mastery, I bring all of this deep. Work and philosophy and enlightenment and awakening stuff into this container of mastery called the Samurai Coaching Dojo that I actually created to give coaches an experience of what it's like to live in a monastery and practice with intensity and depth, Um, then you can go to SamuraiCoachingDojo.com and and check it out. And if you don't want to buy anything, look for the part of yourself that is in that question. Because there's a part of you that's already in that question now, it may be scary to feel it it may be scary to lean into it but you don't have to take my word for it you can look directly you can sit in meditation you can try to find the origin of your thought you can you can investigate directly and there's no coach no program no book that will ever be as powerful as your own direct adventure and investigation into what is at the center of your being
0: oh, i love it i love your ability i love that distinction that you know i know that you're someone that can take people as deep as they want to go, and you can also help people make lots of money. There's something beautiful about both of those things.
1: Well, there's no. In some ways, there's no difference, right? It's it's when we we think that what's going to happen when we start to do like really truly deep work, work at the foundation of consciousness, work on physics. Um, we think what's going to happen is we're going to change and be different. But what actually happens is we get a more pure version of ourselves. Like when I went to the monastery, I didn't become less argumentative or less playful or less goofy. Like I was all those things before the monastery. But the version of me that comes out, now I can argue for awakening. Now I can be playful in a way that has people open and relax. Now I can be goofy in a way that, that delights people without, without losing any of my power or respect for myself. So you don't lose yourself in a way. You have to be willing to give yourself up give up all the things you have. But what happens is you get this version of yourself back. It's like the, what's the Zen line? Imagine if the whole body was free from dust.
0: I love it. We've got a few minutes left. Last question is always on the dark side. Mm. I'm interested to hear how you relate to the dark side, or even if do you relate to a dark side? And how do you embrace your own dark side?
1: Yeah, I've always hold, held this reality that the goal in life is not to find to become the best version of yourself, but to become the most whole version of yourself. So I have a very interesting, deep relationship with my dark side. And my dark side is incredibly violent and dark. I mean, like, you know, imagine like slitting people's throats and like, you know, killing people in front of their children. Like there's a dark side of me that's just like totally dark. Just like really, we did a whole thing in John Wineland's men's group about dark fantasy. And several men were like, I could not, listen to your dark fantasy because it was too dark so i i love that darkness and you know i think that there is we want to believe that there's evil people somewhere i'm totally like half quoting somebody right now i can't remember who there's totally evil people somewhere and we could just like you know put them off in a camp somewhere and get rid of them but the truth is is that the nature of good and evil cuts through the very center of everyone's heart and so and who's willing to cut a piece out of their own heart and so and that's totally like half a quote from someone that I can't remember right now. So I'm just totally plagiarizing. Um, but I think that's really true that my experience in my dark side is I, when I am able to include my dark side and bring it, then I am I am more full, more of my goodness is available and more of myself is available. And so my image of my, uh, what John Wineland calls my God form is a fire, fire breathing Buddha. So, I feel like I was put on this earth to be a fire breathing Buddha. So, deeply compassionate, deeply awake, loving, forgiving, accepting, and also just breath of fire. Like, I will destroy you and everything about you in one sentence in a way that will make you like want to crawl under your covers forever. And I love that I have that power. And I hate when I lose control of it and hurt someone with it or hurt myself with it,
0: which happens. You know, I'm not
1: saying all the time, but it happens enough that it, I am reminded that it's there,
0: mm. and we just you say that come from a base of anger
1: oh yeah, incredible rage, incredible rage I, so can
0: you how do you can you channel that in any way do you do you, do you go to the gym? do you you know punch a punching bag? Is there anything that you do to try and embrace it or are you more just try and be with it
1: um I've done all sorts of different things with it so I've done sacred theater where I've acted it out um I've done punching bags. I've done exercise. I've hit myself. I've yelled at people. Um, I've never actually been physically violent with other people, which I I feel good about. I'm glad that I have not. I mean, I've, I probably like smacked a, I know I smacked a cat one time and I had an idea, I had a girlfriend who had a child and I I gave him a little spank, like a slap on the butt that probably came from anger. So, but I've never like really physically harmed anyone out of anger. It's not that I can think. Um, There might be something I'm not remembering, but um, I've never really gotten to fights or beat anyone up. so, um, but I've definitely you know, been verbally verbally attacked people and gotten in pretty gnarly fights with partners. Um, mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I mean, I've had done every skillful and unskillful way of doing that, and I've gotten way better at being with that anger and feeling it and knowing how to practice with it. and but it is just sort of this kind of beast that lives inside of me. um the the thing that I've found has had the biggest impact is not resisting it. When I feel that anger, not pretending that I'm not angry and trying to say, well, I can't get angry or it's not okay to get angry because I'm going to hurt someone or I'm going to have this negative effect, but being like, yep, I'm angry. Like I'm really, really pissed off right now. And when I own it and I'm able to express it, then it, then I transmute it. And there's time for that fierce anger has been the, the line between anger and determination is very thin, It's very thin. And so my, a lot of my persistence is about anger. I mean, you know, I started the Samurai Coaching Jojo because honestly, like I am fucking pissed off at all of the shitty coaching stuff out there. Maybe I don't have a beef with the ICF, but I honestly think the ICF is a fucking joke. Like they are training, giving coaches drivers license and pretending that's mastery. Right? If the ICF was great, we should have a world full of incredible coaches. And yet when I talk to other coaches, they and I ask them who do you know who's a really great coach? They can think of like two people. It should not be that hard to think of a great coach. And so I'm like pissed off that like we have this whole industry with people who are coming forward into the world who really want to help others. And we're just like handing them a shitty framework and a manual and saying like, okay, you're certified. That's it. You're done. That's ridiculous. Like coaching can be one of the most transformative things we can offer our society. And there is what we accept for quality coaching, what we accept for mastery in ourselves and from our peers is absurd. So if I wasn't so pissed off about that, I never would have started the Samurai Coaching Dojo. I never would have started, started the No More Shitty Coaching Project. I wouldn't spend every day practicing and trying to understand better coaching frameworks. I would be like, oh, that sucks. And I would move on with my life. So I don't know. I don't want to really get rid of that anger because it, it drives me to like, solve problems that other people kind of just accept as the way things are.
0: Yeah, I love that line. Anger and persistence are very close to each other. Yeah, Toku, thank you for your time. This has been one of the most fascinating conversations I think I've ever had. So (laughs) thank you for taking me there. And thank you for taking the listeners there, being vulnerable and sharing your stories, your gifts and the story of your life.
1: Yeah, thank you, man. Anytime was,
0: I love you, brother. It's really great that you're doing this. I love you too. Thanks, man. There you go, folks. My conversation with the wonderful Toku McCree. Go and check him out at unexecutive.com and check out the Coaching Dojo on Facebook and everything else that Toku's putting out around the internet. Thanks, guys. Make sure you share this episode around. Give it a like if you see it on Facebook in passing. Make a comment. Let me know what you think of it. Send me an email. Drop me a message. I'd love to hear what you're thinking about the show and what you love and what you'd like to see more of. And until next time, I'll be back next week with episode 44 of The Nathan Seward Show. That was The Nathan Seward Show.
1: Personal conversations with powerful men.